Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you now. As I shared in episode 13, in the 1960s and early 1970s, there was a dramatic increase in the number of recreationists using Algonquin Park, which led in 1974 to the publishing of an Algonquin Park Master Plan. Though there were lots of Algonquin defining moments in that plan, one of the little ones was a decision in 1994 that Algonquin Park would no longer allow full-time residents. The only exception was and is today for caretakers who support the various children's camps. For a long time, I was only aware of a few full-time residents up on Potter Creek on Canoe Lake and Jack Coons who lived on Bonita Lake just south of us. All of that changed in the late 1990s when I discovered Gertrude Baskerville. As most of you know, I started my journey into the human history of Algonquin Park paddling around Canoe Lake with my young twin boys. Though their interest was primarily in checking out all of my neighbors' outhouses, mine was uncovering and collecting settlement and other kinds of family stories from my fellow leaseholders. Within a few years, this stack of transcribed stories was significant, and I was about to publish some of them as a chronicle for my fellow Canoe Lake neighbors and friends. One afternoon, Marge Baskerville and her husband Ed stopped by to ask if I'd be interested in hearing about the story of Ed's mother Gertrude, who had lived for over 35 years alone in Algonquin Park near the Smoke Creek Bridge. Though technically not on Canoe Lake, I was intrigued and later rather flabbergasted that I'd never heard of her, nor had I remembered either of my parents ever mentioning her. With them, the Baskervilles brought me this big box of papers, pictures, and other memorabilia of Gertrude's life. After many hours of interviews and research, Gertrude Baskerville, the Lady of Algonquin Park, became the first book of what is now nearly a dozen books on Algonquin Park's human history. Gertie, as she was known by all, lived alone in a small 20-foot by 20-foot three-room cabin by the shores of South Tea Lake, 12 months a year from 1941 until 1969, and from early spring until the first snows for another 10 years. With only a wood stove to keep the fall and winter chills away and no electricity until the mid-1950s, her cabin had very little in the way of amenities. Managing to create a life with no electricity, no running water, and no central heating is a feat that most of us in this day and age can hardly imagine. According to her family, Gertrude Baskerville loved the wilderness and was a great naturalist. An expert canoeist, she thought nothing of paddling miles to visit with friends. She worked for a time as a lumber camp cook and even did a spot as a fishing guide. She could identify most wildflowers, mushrooms, and types of fungi on the trees. When walking in the woods, she would often pick gum off of a spruce tree and chew it to cleanse her palate. She was also a free spirit and a very tough lady. It was either her way or no way. It wasn't until the 1970s, in her 80s, that she finally trusted her daughter-in-law enough in her kitchen to let her prepare the main meal, but even then insisted on making the salad. She survived by renting a few cabins to vacationers in summer, and in winter by sewing by hand intricate bedspreads, braiding rugs, and hooking wall hangings of Tom Thompson paintings and other outdoor scenes that she would sell to visiting tourists. 
What I'd like to do in this episode is share some of the interesting details of Gertie's life in the bush, which I expect will provide lots of food for thought. Gertrude Musculo Baskerville was born on September 24, 1895, and grew up on a farming settlement called Bird's Creek in the township of Monteagle, which was about 10 miles from the uranium town of Bancroft, Ontario. Her father, Charles Musculo, had come to Canada from Germany in 1864 with his parents. He married Martha Rebecca Wasmund in 1889, and together they had 10 children. In those days, coal oil lamps were the only source of light. Heat was from a wood stove, and every day water had to be hauled from a well some distance from the house. All the kids learned at an early age how to help out and pull their own weight, as there was no hired help. Her mother was a real go-getter and a strong-willed character, traits that she passed on to her daughters. She never had to tell her children twice when she wanted something done. She was a dedicated weaver and would spend many an hour weaving her own cloth. Though Rebecca had no formal education and could read just a bit, she and Gertie's father, Charles, made sure that all of their children attended the Musculo School in the nearby Musculo Settlement, so-called because of the number of Musculo families that had settled in the area. Often the school teacher would board at their home, a common practice in those days, which resulted in all of the Musculos becoming avid readers. Gertie also loved to play the piano and would walk miles into Bancroft each week to play the organ in the local Anglican church. The children also learned a wide variety of craft and outdoor skills, which served all of them well in their later lives. But Gertie's mother died in 1913, when Gertie was still a teenager, and the youngest child, Alma, was only nine years old. Her father married again soon after, which was very common in those days for a man with a house full of children, and moved the family to Kitchener. It was there that Gertie met her husband, Chester, who was known as Ted, whom she married at St. John's Anglican Church around 1914. Ted was born in 1894 in Huntsville, the closest town to Algonquin Park, but it is unknown how his family got to the Kitchener area. One of Gertie's brothers, Charles Jr., was born in 1892 and spent most of his childhood, as was the custom, working very hard on the farm. He finished the eighth grade at Musculo School and left home at 15 to work around the area, sometimes as far north as Timmins. In 1914, he headed west to British Columbia and spent the next six years trapping in the winter and in summer would work as a land surveyor. He had named after him a mountain lake and river in British Columbia, a lake in the Northwest Territories, and another lake in Northern Ontario. In the early 1920s, Charlie returned to Ontario, married a woman named Ellen, whom he always called Helen, and settled on a fur farm which was located about 12 miles from Lindsay, Ontario. They had two sons, another Charles, who was born in 1931, and Lorne, who was born in 1933. In March of 1936, Helen's cousin, a man by the name of Jack Oakes, convinced Charles to take a five-acre lease on South Tea Lake in Algonquin Park. Highway 60 was just being constructed, and this site was just off the new route. According to family lore, Jack's view was that Algonquin Park was the up-and-coming place to be for the tourist business. He contributed $335 to the venture for some of the basics, such as canoes, beds, blankets, and Charlie put up the additional $1,500 investment. This was a fortune in those days, and so in May 1936, the family moved up to Benita Narrows in Algonquin Park. 
Bonita Narrows was located conveniently at the intersection of three key bodies of water, Canoe Lake to the north, where the train came through from Scotia Junction and Ottawa, South Tea Lake to the west, which was the entryway to the Oxtongue River, and Smoke Lake to the southwest, which was a gateway to many of the key fishing areas. When they first arrived, Charles hired a few locals, and with the help of two of his other brothers, Harry and Alan, put up two tents. Each had three-foot wooden walls, a floor, and a canvas roof. In this they all lived for that first summer until the main guest house was finished. The main lodge was a wonderful structure and still stands today. At about 35 feet by 35 feet, it had a central living room with a stone fireplace and a screened-in porch overlooking Bonita Narrows. Charlie was quite skilled in woodworking, and he made most of the furniture from beaver cuttings. He also constructed a boat that was later used to ferry guests up to the train station and around the nearby lakes. The lodge officially opened for business on May 24, 1937, and was called Camp Comac. In the fall of 1937, a sleeping cabin and a kitchen and dining room cabin were added. It soon became apparent, however, that Camp Comac wouldn't support two families, so Jack Oakes pulled out, leaving Charlie with a cabin, a tent for a kitchen dining room, and no guests. Almost no one knew that the lodge even existed. However, Ellen was not about to give up, and after a few weeks, she told Charlie she would take the boat out to the Smoke Creek Bridge to see if anyone stopped to fish. And if they did, she would try to get them to come to stay. She advised him in no uncertain terms that if he saw her coming with people in the boat, he was to immediately be on the dock to welcome them as host of Moscolo Lodge. After she got to the bridge, it was not long before a car stopped with a man, a woman, and two kids. It turned out that they'd been staying at the Apiango Lodge, but hadn't been comfortable there. They took to Ellen and decided to come and stay at what was now instantly Muscolo Lodge. The Muscolos were now in business. Interest spread by word of mouth like wildfire, and in that first year the guest count was 51. In 1938 it nearly tripled to 133, and after that it was a roaring success, with 171 visiting in 1939, and 200 in both 1940 and 1941. However, it still wasn't enough to support the family, so Charlie recruited his brothers Harry and Alan and was able to earn extra money in the off-seasons by building log cabins for a growing number of leaseholders who were taking leases on nearby lakes. Charlie was very skilled and a special craftsman and an expert boat builder. He built a boat to ferry guests back and forth and a barge which was used to haul in supplies and lumber. Lorne tells of the time his father showed him how to fit cedar planks together. He would take an iron rod and hammer and bruise the center of the planks and then fit them together really tight. Then he would wet the bruised part, which would swell up and not leak. This technique, Lorne said, always worked. Ellen's life in Algonquin Park was not an easy one. At four foot ten and less than a hundred pounds, she had to do the cooking, the cleaning, including washing all of the laundry by hand with water from the lake and all of the managing of Muscolo Lodge. She did hire a teenage girl to help over the summer when there were lots of guests, which was a blessing. And when Lauren and Charlie Jr. were old enough, she also managed their schooling for grades 1, 2, and 3 through correspondence courses. But in those days, Algonquin Park was a great place to be a kid. In spring, after the ice went out, the Omanique Lumber Company would release into the lakes logs which had been cut during the winter and stacked, mostly on the shores of Smoke Lake. The loggers would then run them down Smoke Creek, then ferry them with barges across the south end of Tea Lake 
and up Benita Narrows and Canoe Lake to the Omanique Mill on Potter Creek. According to Lorne, there used to be incredible log jams on the shore, where the Tea Lake campgrounds are now. The logger's bunkhouse and cook shack were on a barge, and they used to tie it up to the low rock outcropping on Smoke Creek, just upstream from the bridge. Lorne and Charlie Jr. would scrounge raisin pie and green tea from the cook. Then they would run up and down under the Smoke Creek Bridge on the logs. The cook would try to chase them off the logs, but as the logs were small and they were nimble, they were never caught. According to Gertie, thank goodness for that. For if Ellen had ever seen them there, there would have been hell to pay. Later in the 1940s, Gertie would often help out the camp cook on the barge. Lauren remembers when he first saw Tom Thompson's painting of a log jam and was impressed with how well Thompson had captured the image of this event. Soon after Gertie had married, her husband Ted went off to France to fight in World War I. He was badly hurt by the mustard gas attacks and was pensioned off by the military at $40 a month. But by the late 1930s, his health was deteriorating, so he and Gertie decided that they needed to find a place to live that would be both good for Ted's health and be less expensive. As I've mentioned before, conventional wisdom at the time was that living amongst the trees was good for the lungs and that Algonquin Park had very low pollen counts. They had heard marvelous tales from Charles and Ellen about how wonderful Algonquin Park was, so in June of 1941, they decided to return to Ted's roots and took up a lease next to the Muscalos on the point between Muscalo Lodge and the Smoke Creek Bridge. Alma, their daughter, who was then 25, decided to stay and work in Kitchener, but their son Ed, who was just 16, decided to move with them to Algonquin Park. The Baskervilles didn't have a car, so they, plus all of their belongings, came in on the train to Canoe Lake Station. Charlie met them there with his barge, and for the first few weeks they stayed at the Muscalos until their own cabin was built. Gertie's brothers, Alan and Harry, and brother-in-law Gus came to help them get started. Because it was too strenuous work for Ted, Ed, Gus, and Gertie were Charlie's right hands in helping build the Baskerville cabin set back about 50 yards from the lakeside. By the end of July, they had moved into the kitchen part, and were ready to start their new life, even though it was several months later before the whole cabin was finished. Gertie could still recall in her 80s her first experiences of the woods up on the roof hammering down sheathing. The next order of business was to build a root cellar. It was costly to ship in supplies, and since refrigerators were non-existent, a root cellar was the only way to store vegetables and preserved fruits. First, Ed and Charlie dug a six-foot hole deep into a bank, which was very difficult due to the great quantities of roots and rocks. Then they cut cedar logs in the right size and added walls for the sides. Logs were then put across the roof, and the roof was covered with dirt. Across the front was a little door to get into a small vestibule and another door to enter the actual root cellar. None of the children or grandchildren were ever allowed to play on the site because Gertie was always afraid that it would cave in. Gertie's sister and brother, Adeline and Alan, who lived nearby in Brancroft, would bring bushels of potatoes, cabbages, turnips, and apples each fall, and Gertie herself would grow beans, beets, tomatoes, and carrots in her garden, and preserve it all. In 1997, when the remains of the root cellar were dug up, lo and behold, a number of jars of preserves were found still intact. The next project was the ice house. 
There was no electricity into the park until 1953, so huge amounts of ice were needed to keep the icebox cool during the summer. One of the major tasks in the winter for years was to map out and clear a section of lake ice, cut out the 18-inch square blocks, hoist them onto a sled, haul them from the lake to the ice house, and then stack and pack them in sawdust. Every year they'd need at least 350 blocks of ice, which was in an area about the size of a small skating rink. And even with the help of local neighbors' horse and wagon, it would take all day to do this. Later, when the hydro came in, the ice house was converted into a small sleeping cabin that they called Driftwood. The last project that year was to build a sleeping cabin, which in later years was known as the honeymoon cabin, because couples who would come to Algonquin Park on their honeymoon would return on an anniversary to spend the weekend there. Once, A.Y. Jackson slept there, and not only signed her guest book, but gave her a gift book on art, which Gertie loved and kept for years. He was staying with a friend, Chuck Matthews, who had a lease up on Canoe Lake and had come down to Tea Lake to paint. The two got caught in a powerful north wind and weren't able to make it back up to Canoe Lake, so they spent the night with Gertie. In later years, Ed and his wife Marge took Gertie to visit Jackson at the McMichael Gallery where he was living. He remembered her and his experience sleeping in her quaint log cabin by the lake. Because of the state of Ted's health, the Baskervilles realized that having a phone would be vital for Ted's well-being. Though it was wartime, World War II, there was a shortage of men to do the installation. The park authorities were running a bush phone line along Highway 60 to connect the east and west gates with the park headquarters on Cache Lake. They agreed that if Gertie could give a hand in the digging of post holes and in stringing wire, they would manage to route a connector phone to her place on Baskerville Point. So Gertie got out her shovel, dug trenches through roots and rocks, strung wire, and sealed the deal with several raspberry pies, for which she later became very famous in the family. The telephone proved to be most valuable, especially in times of need, and not always for them. People called from faraway places to check on missing persons or to call a doctor back home in an emergency. It was also a relay point from time to time for fire rangers fighting forest fires in the park. By early October, the cabins were built and it was now time to get a few other things ready for their first winter. That first winter of 1941-42 was a very hard one. The temperatures were often as low as 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. There was an unusually heavy frost in mid-November and snow soon after, which did not leave until spring. The snowdrifts reached the cabin eaves and there was no January thaw. Even worse, in March there was a lot of freezing rain, which left a hard crust that the deer could not break through with their hoofs. This made it very difficult for them to graze. Quite a number died in the bush, and Gertie even found one injured on the lake. There was nothing that they could do for it, and it died a few days later. These early events affected Gertie greatly, and though she never said much about it, for the rest of her life she committed herself to doing as much as she could to help the animals that lived around her. And I'll talk further about that a little bit later in this podcast. The first thing she decided otherwise, though, was that she needed a cross-cut saw in order to cut their winter supply of wood. Charlie had a truck, so Gertie went with him to Huntsville and bought this first major household appliance. After 30 years in the city, she had never in her life done this kind of work, and the resulting blisters took weeks to heal. The woodshed was located about five paces to the east of the kitchen door. It was 25 feet long, 6 feet high with a roof, and was enclosed on three sides. 
A typical winter required over 20 full cords of wood to be cut and stacked. For those unaware, a full cord is a stack of wood four foot high by four foot wide by four foot deep. The wood was cut in two different lengths, one for the kitchen stove, the other for the living room box stove. Soft and hardwoods and kindling were piled separately. The living room box stove was originally a 50-gallon oil drum, with the bottom removed and the fittings for a stove attached. It was the only source of heat until Gertie and Ted were able to afford a proper cast-iron wood stove. The fittings were mail-ordered from Eaton's Camp and Cottage Catalog. In the 30s and 40s, Eaton's used to offer residences at summer cottages their very own mail-order book that included just about every item one could possibly need for a cottage, from canned goods to canoes. Everything you ordered was packed and delivered from Toronto for free to the nearest steamship dock or railway station. It was common practice in those days to order and have delivered all of the staples that one would need for the summer season. On a normal winter day, the wood stove would need restoking every hour or so. This meant putting on boots, hats, mittens, coats, and scarves, and then digging one's way out the walkway if it was full of drifted snow, and then tramping out to the woodpile and back several times with armfuls of wood. It was exhausting work. Hauling water from the lake was another tough chore, until a hand pump was installed in the 1950s. It was especially difficult in the winter. Melting snow was too much work and used up too much wood, so the best bet was to build a semi-permanent winter water hole. First, a hole approximately two feet by two feet was cut in the ice after the freeze-up. Then, an old wooden milk crate with the bottom removed was placed over the hole and covered with split logs or branches. The spot had to be blazed with a large branch because the strong west winds would often completely obliterate the location in minutes. Sometimes the hole would freeze to a depth of a couple of inches or more overnight and had to be chopped open again in the morning with an axe. A guide rope was also strung up to show the way from the cabin down the path to the water hole at Lakeside. This was a safety precaution in case of fierce storms that would often erase the path overnight. In 1942, when spring arrived, the Baskerville world was upended again. Ellen was pregnant, and Charles had decided to sell and move back to British Columbia. He felt very strongly that the World War in Europe was going to ruin the tourist business in Canada. The summer of 1943 was glorious, but by fall it was clear that Ted needed better medical care. Ed had joined the Canadian Army that July when he was 18. Thankfully, they kept him in Canada because of Ted's illness. But that changed in January 1944, when Ted died at the age of 49. Ed was sent overseas, and now Gertie was really on her own. But by then, she had become so enamored with Algonquin Park that she couldn't even consider leaving. To Gertie's good fortune, in those first years, there were a lot of people who had stayed in Muscolo Lodge and were very disappointed to find out that it had closed. They would ask the park rangers where they could spend a weekend. Many suggested looking up Gertie, and soon she had a regular clientele to keep her busy. She wasn't able to get an official commercial lease because Camp Tamaqua had the only one that was allowed on the lake. But for whatever reasons, the Department of Lands and Forests seemed not to mind her brother building a few additional sleeping cabins on their lease. After the war, her son Ed decided that permanent residency in Algonquin wasn't for him, and he moved to Kitchener, where his sister Alma resided. 
There he met his wife Marge at the Rockway Golf Club, and they were married in 1955. Both Ed and Marge loved South Tea Lake and would spend summer vacations there. Gertie was always glad to see them come, but her relatives always secretly thought that after a few weeks she was just as glad when they left. In summer, with guests and relatives about, Gertrude was never in want of companionship, but in the winter it was a different matter. Social engagement options were twofold. Either she trekked a mile across South Tea Lake to Camp Tamaqua to visit the Lundys, who were the caretakers there, or she headed three miles north through Bonita Narrows to visit Everett Farley and his wife Margaret and their daughter Lulu, who lived up on Potter Creek at the north end of Canoe Lake. On a good day, this distance to Potter Creek would take by snowshoe several hours, which meant that visiting was only for special occasions. So what was it really like living in Algonquin Park, independent and alone for most of the year? First, you had to be bright and industrious with lots of initiative, which Gertie surely was. In the spring, the ice would usually go out in mid to late April, and every year Gertie would have a bet with herself as to what day it would be gone. The process was an awesome sight and sound. For days ahead, there would be creaking and long cracks and crevices would stretch out from shore. It was too dangerous to walk on with small patches of open water in various places. And then one night, a strong east wind would pick up and by morning, the lake would be mostly open water with ice flows floating all around and piling up on the shore. There was a water level marker on a stump out on Baskerville Point, which the Department of Lands and Forests had put there. And for many years, on awakening in the morning, Gertie would check the water level and report her findings to the department. One year, she woke up to find the water so high that the dock, her bench, and her boat seemed to be way out in the middle of the lake. However, this didn't last for long. As soon as she reported it, the department staff took some of the restraining logs out of Tea Lake Dam, and within a few days, the water level was down to more reasonable levels. Once the daily temperature started to rise and the snow was leaving the forest floor, it'd be time to start sugaring. Gertie had a stand of sugar maple trees on a hill behind the main cabin, and each year would tap around 60 trees. Ed would come up from Kitchener, and for several weeks, he and Gertie would gather sap three times a day, early morning, noon, and supper time and haul it up and down this big steep hill. They would build a huge fire in a fire pit and boil the water-like sap for hours in a special kettle suspended over the open fire. Keeping the fire going at sufficient temperature was a major effort, and once the majority of the water had boiled off, Gertie would finish it off in the stove in the house. The timing of this had to be exact, because if it weren't, then the entire kitchen, including walls and ceiling, would get covered with a sticky, syrupy mess from the condensing steam. Sometimes the deer would come and drink sap out of the buckets on the trees, and often would upset them, to Gertie's great annoyance. To celebrate the first batch each year, Gertie would put on a great big pancake feed for all who were around. Later, Gertie's brother Alan built a sugar shack up on the hill, which meant that they no longer had to carry those buckets up and down over the rocks and steep hill to the fire pit. Each year, they would end up with about 20 to 25 gallons of syrup, which was usually enough to supply all of the extended family until the following spring. The biggest challenge when living alone was in getting help to do big projects. These were usually lots of ongoing maintenance tasks that couldn't be accomplished with just one person. 
For example, one year when Gertie was in her 70s, high water the previous fall had caused extensive damage to the main dock. Unbeknownst to Gertie's unsuspecting family who were planning on coming to South Tea Lake for two weeks of rest and relaxation, Gertie decided that she needed a new dock. They all arrived late one Friday night, and the next morning everyone was jolted out of bed just after dawn by a terrible racket. Racing down to the dock to investigate, they found Gertie with her hammer and tools attempting to rip up all of the old boards on the dock. Without saying a word, everyone knew that a cottage project was in the works, and sunbathing was not on the agenda. They all immediately wolfed down breakfast, and in no time flat, they were all at work. Ed was the most experienced, so he went out looking for the right size of trees to be used as runners, which he then measured and cut with Gertie's old cross-cut saw. Though it was the 1970s, Gertie wanted nothing to do with modern power saws and refused to have any on her property. As she used to say with some frequency, early settlers managed without them, so I can too. Her granddaughter Mary and her husband Greg went out with the boat and towed the logs home. By then it was pouring rain, but it was a warm day, so everyone got into their bathing suits and they didn't mind getting wet. After inspecting the cribs, Gertie also decided over the family's objections that they needed to be removed and rebuilt. Just a few more logs to cut and tow, she said. Talk about an understatement. All of the stones inside the old crib had to be taken out and then put back in once the new crib logs were installed. At one point... Mary lost Gertie's pike pole, and there was nearly a family crisis. In the logging days, as we, I've shared before, pike poles were an especially important part of a lumberman's gear and were used to push and pull the logs around. This one was especially dear to Gertie as her brother Charlie had left it to her. Luckily, Gertie didn't notice it gone, and when they found it a few hours later on the bottom of the lake, there were great sighs of relief all around. Gertie spent her time supervising, which meant walking up and down the shore, tapping and banging sticks on all the rocks and trees. Several days later, in hours of tedious work, without proper tools, as the family would retort, the new dock was finished, just in time for the arrival of summer guests. Now I think is a good time for a musical break. I'm pleased to share with you a song called Waltz with the Woods by the Wakami Whalers. It's about Algonquin, and is off their album by the same name, Waltz with the Woods. Lonely the wind moans through the trees Softly the dew is lifting Treasures of soul waltz with the woods Song of my heart, Algonquin Paddles have drawn dreamers and seekers Sharing her wealth and beauty All that she is, is all that she offers Queen of the forest, range for all time Lonely the wind moans through the trees 
Softly the dew is lifting Treasures of soul Waltz with the woods Song of my heart Algonquin Horses and sleighs In the cold night of winter Smoke from the wood fire rising Natives and rangers, trappers and loggers All left their mark and all touched her soul Lonely the wind moans through the trees Softly the dew is lifting Treasures of soul waltz with the woods Song of my heart Algonquin So many men have passed through these wild woods And so many weary travelers Tired and torn from a world filled with madness Seeking the strength that this earth can bring And given the gift, wild woods and water Silver of winter, gold of the fall With peace in their hearts, they faded to darkness Leaving their spirits to waltz with the woods Lonely the wind moans through the trees Softly the dew is lifting Treasures of soul waltz with the woods Song of my heart, Algonquin Lonely the wind moans through the trees Softly the dew is lifting Treasures of soul Waltz with the woods Song of my heart, Algonquin Lonely the wind Moans through the trees Softly the dew is lifting Treasures Another major spring activity was to prepare and plant the 40-foot by 20-foot garden. This was a challenge from two perspectives. First, because of the short growing season, it was hard to get vegetables such as tomatoes to ripen before the season ended. Secondly, in order to keep the raccoons and deer out, a really high chicken wire-based and anti-deer and rodent fence had to be installed all around the edge. At the same time, Gertie worried that the deer would get caught in the wire, so she built two rows of wooden rails from small trees all around the top. This was designed to alert the deer as to the presence of this chicken wire. A wooden gate was at the front with a sign which read Gertie's Gardens, and there was a stone path leading to it and from it from the cabin. One area was for vegetables and the other was for flowers. 
Gertie grew beans, tomatoes, carrots, rhubarb, lettuce, radishes, asparagus, lilies, begonias, sweet peas, sweet williams, lupines, hollyhocks, and all of the local wildflowers. Early spring brought wild strawberries, and in summer there were raspberries and blueberries. The garden was a joy for Gertie and brought her much pleasure. As she used to say, one is nearer God in the garden than anywhere else on earth. One year she decided to dig a well and spent all summer digging a hole and lining it with stones from top to bottom. Though clear for a while, eventually the water became pretty murky and could only be used to water the vegetables and the flowers in the garden. Queen Victoria's birthday, the May 24th weekend, was usually considered to be the beginning of the summer season. Gertie by now had five cabins available for rent, but only a few visitors would come in the early spring, and they usually had a purpose. They would paint, conduct biological research, or other scientific studies, and from them Gertie learned a lot about the ways of animals and birds. Gertie was kept busy cooking and cleaning for her guests, and she used to charge $4 a day, which would include bed, food, and entertainment. Visitors and other cottagers would drop in all the time to see her handicrafts and listen to the stories she had to tell. Sometimes she would take guests on hikes through the woods and point out all sorts of things that one wouldn't normally see. Her granddaughter had fond memories of when Gertie introduced her to the wonders of spruce sap chewing gum and her famous fitty bus. A fitty bus was a piece of cedar with the top shaved. Small twigs would be added and the whole thing would be rolled into a newspaper. This was given to family and guests to start fires in wood stoves in their sleeping cabins as they headed off to bed. Another major task that occurred both in the summer and late in fall was the preparation of food for the winter months. In July, this would begin with the collection and preservation of raspberries into jam or jelly. In fall, there would be lots of vegetables from the garden, such as potatoes and squashes and turnips, that all needed to be properly stored and placed in the root cellar. Though there was always a crowd at Thanksgiving, Labor Day weekend usually brought the last major tourist influx. By then, in most years, the water was too cold to swim. The weather was often cold and rainy with tremendous north winds bearing down. And some years it would snow, though it would melt as soon as it hit the ground. Sometimes there would be a lovely few weeks of warm weather in late September. But by mid-October, the fall colors would be long past and the wood stove would need to be kept on all day to keep the chill out of the cabin. Gertie never had a car, nor ever learned to drive, so getting fresh supplies was always a challenge. Gertie knew and loved to know everyone who had anything to do with Algonquin Park, and early on became well acquainted with Sandy Haggard of Whitney. He used to haul the mail each day from Whitney to Huntsville and back again, and he was liked by all and was rarely stopped by bad weather. To facilitate matters, Gertie built a special bear-proof box out by Highway 60, which was hidden in the bushes. Every six weeks or so, Gertie would phone the IGA in Huntsville and place her food and equipment order. Sandy would pick up her grocery list and take her mail into Huntsville. In town, he would pick up her groceries and anything else she needed with her mail and pay the appropriate storekeeper. He would then drop the supplies off on his way through the park and pick up the money that Gertie would leave for him in the box. Another major issue was health care. The closest major hospital was 50 kilometers away in Huntsville. There were doctors on the lake at both of the children's camps in the summertime who were more than ready to help any cottager in an emergency. However, most of Gertie's health care was based on family, herbal-based home remedies. Some were clearly of little value, 
such as the remedy for heart disease, which was to apply to the heart a cloth soaked with hot water to which a tablespoon of mustard had been added. For varicose veins, the remedy was to add a heaping teaspoon of golden seal and half a teaspoon of myrrh into a pint of boiling water and take a swallow of this six to seven times a day. And for the grip, which was to sprinkle sulfur on shoes and stay out of the cold. For those unaware, the grip was an old-fashioned term for influenza. But other of her remedies, such as that for frostbite, bee stings, and hoarseness, were probably quite useful. For frostbite, she would bathe the area with snow and then soak it with strong alum water. For hoarseness, she would mix and gargle with half and half of glycerin and warm water. For wrinkles, the recipe was to apply an ounce of coconut oil with a quarter ounce of almond oil and rub it on the wrinkles. Invigorating her hair was to wash it with strong sage tea, and to deal with dandruff, the recipe was to rub kerosene oil and glycerin into the roots of the hair, or take 60 grains of sulfur, mix it with an ounce of Vaseline, and apply it every night to the scalp, and massage it in. Another one was to take strong salt, leave it on your hair, and comb it out when it was dry. But one that was really dangerous was for snake bites, and that one was to open the wound, bandage it with kerosene, and then drink a spoonful of kerosene. Oh my. But one of Gertie's favorite pastimes, especially for her summer guests, was cooking. She had several large, very large cast iron pans which she left hanging on the wall outside her kitchen door. She always said that if any man ever tried to come in and get fresh, she would let him have it with one of those frying pans. Only once did she ever get surprised by another person in the woods. She ran into a stranger one day who had gotten lost trying to find his way to a neighbor who had moved up the road in 1953. It was a cold, snowy day, and the sun was just going down. She was walking down the road that connected her place to Highway 60, rounded a bend, and walked smack into a man coming the other way. After staring at each other for a moment and collecting their respective wits, he asked her where she was going. She remarked that she lived there and was going out to the road and asked him where he was going. He said he was looking for one of the Stringer boys. Gertie advised him that everyone had hightailed out of there weeks ago and that he was a good three miles as the crow flies from where the Stringers lived. The man turned on a dime and headed back down the road to the highway without another word. This story reminded me of my own similar experience when my boys were very young. I was heading to the outhouse when a man suddenly, soundlessly appeared out of the woods, scaring me within an inch of my life. Turned out he was from Bell Canada and was checking the quality of the phone line. One of Gertie's old standby recipes was for her raspberry pie. Every summer she would search out wild raspberries that she would find in the open spaces by the roadside. In addition to the pies that her guests would rave about, she'd also make raspberry jam. In her later years, when it was too difficult to remain in Algonquin Park year-round, she would come down to Kitchener for the winter. Every fall, she would bring with her to Alma's home a huge supply of jam in a large wicker basket. During the long winter, there would be all sorts of excuses as to why Alma shouldn't eat the jam. Gertie, it turns out, was worried that she would need it the next spring. Though renting out cabins in the summer did earn Gertie some money, 
Like her brother Charlie and so many before her, she soon realized that it would not be quite enough to make ends meet. One winter she started making rugs. First she made mat rugs, and then she tried hooking rugs and even braided ones. Later she got interested in making posy bedspreads that proved to be very popular. Each pinwheel posy was about one and a half inches in diameter, and it took 2,000 circles to make one bedspread. Long winter days enabled her to make a lot of bedspreads. After these successes, she started hooking rug wall hangings of winter scenes, and later of Tom Thompson painting replicas. She would take the painting that she wanted to copy and mark it off into four-inch squares. Then she would take a brown piece of paper, 40 inches by 24 inches, and mark it off into an identical number of squares. In each square, she would then copy the pattern from the painting, with markers indicating which colors were to be used. It was tedious work, took a long time to do, and required painstaking accuracy. Both the color and the location of the rug threads had to be exactly right. But Gertie had lots of time on long winter days and evenings. She also had a friend who worked in a fabric plant in Kitchener, who was able to get various types of wool ends for her. She would dye them with natural dyes that she developed herself from plants, natural flowers, lichens, leaves, and bark that she found all around her cabin. Every bit of wool had to be dyed to the exact shade to match Tom Thompson's colors. Summer and early fall was the time when she did most of her dyeing of the wool and cloth. Several times relatives sent her nice wool sweaters from Scotland that she would often end up using as part of her wall hangings. To set a dye bath or stop a bleeding dye, she used to mix one cup of cider vinegar with one quart of cold water and add it to the plant mixture. The Tom Thompson rug wall hangings were so beautiful and so popular that she couldn't keep up with the orders. In later years, she used to make smaller versions, only 25 inches by 28 inches, and found to her surprise that people would still pay the same amount for them. Gertie also loved to read and had a very extensive library, including interesting literature, guides to surviving in the woods, nature lore, and would sit reading for hours by the coal oil lamp. She would often remark to the survivalists and naturalists that came by that I could tell these fellows a thing or two about the woods. Living alone never seemed to bother her very much. She had her crafts inside and her wildlife outside. The first thing she established was a sign that read, No Dogs. Gertie was afraid, and rightly so, that dogs would scare away the wildlife. She used to love feeding the Canada jays and sparrows by throwing birdseed by her rock garden. One she called Peter, who hung around in the spring and fall and used to zoom in and eat wieners out of her hand. Every day, as soon as Peter saw smoke coming out of the chimney, he would be there waiting for a treat by the woodpile. She trained chickadees to feed from her hands. They would come and sit on her or a visitor's hand, take a piece of broken peanut, look you in the eye, take another piece, and then fly away. At times, there would be three or four flying back and forth. And often in the summer, the screen door would be literally loaded with chickadees at 12 noon. They were expecting their lunch, I presume. She had hummingbird feeders she made with small glass tubes with red ribbons tied on them. On a table in the cabin was a bowl full of peanuts and corn kernels for the squirrels and chipmunks that would scurry through her front door. Eventually they became somewhat of a nuisance, so she built them a feeding station on an old stump that was made of logs with an old hubcap from a car. That became the local watering hole. 
She also had a pet ruffed grouse called Biddy that she would put seed out for by the parking lot. Her granddaughter Mary's first introduction to Biddy involved flying down the path yelling about the wild turkey that was out back. The smaller animals came in for their own care and attention as well. A raccoon, a fox, a marten regularly joined the red squirrel for lunch. For several years, there was even a snake that would allegedly walk around the yard with Gertie. One of the first things that she did to begin to attract animals was to put a large salt block in the yard. All year round, all sorts of moose, deer, bear, porcupines would show up for a lick. Every year, there were six or seven deer, and a favorite pastime was to feed apples to the does and the fawns. They seemed to have their own signal system. The doe would wiggle her ears and the fawns would retreat and wait until Mama signaled that it was safe to come forward and take a bite. Sometimes in winter, 10 to 15 deer would jam the backyard and Gertie would go out and cut cedar for them. In some years, there'd be so much snow drifted against the cabin that the deer would walk right up onto the roof. They seemed to like doing that, especially the fawns, though it was never clear why. Gertie seemed to think that either it was warmer up there or they just liked the idea of being closer to the trees. One winter's day, a doe tapped at her window. Gertie fed her some corn and the doe followed her to Baskerville Point, where there was a lovely stand of young cedar trees. Gertie cut down a few boughs for her and she ate, but after two mouthfuls got up and left. Gertie was furious at her for making her do all that work when she wasn't really hungry. But to Gertie's surprise, ten minutes later the doe returned with the whole herd, and Gertie had to spend the rest of the day cutting cedar boughs for all of the deer. Gertie decided that the deer must have had some way of passing on the information about her to each other, because generation after generation would appear at her door in the spring. Next time any of you are venturing up to the otter slides, take a look carefully at the east shore. You'll notice a large stand of cedar trees, whose lower branches are all the exact same distance from the water. This is because in the winter, every low-hanging branch will have been eaten by the deer. One year, two baby moose also hung around with the deer, knowing instinctively that Gertie was a friend to them. Their mother must have been killed as they had to learn to eat by themselves and were a quick study copying the deer. They used to walk by her door and the window and look in. Another great evening's entertainment was to watch the beavers swim by. Every evening at about 7.30 p.m. one would swim by the dock and around 8 o'clock its companion would follow. Gertie always figured that the last one had to stay behind and clean up after the evening meal. Also in the evening she would see mink running along the shoreline. But the big excitement was always the bears. Gertie always knew when spring had arrived when Joe rattled the lock and peered in her window with his beady eyes. Joe was a huge black bear. Gertie would open the back door, give him a tidbit and say hello and off Joe would amble. Always a favorite bird was the great blue heron. One day she noticed a blue heron standing at an odd angle on a log in the bay gazing into the water. She knew immediately that this was definitely not the proper stance for these majestic but awkward-looking birds. She began feeding it and after a while realized that the bird had a leg injury, which prevented it from standing in the water. After some thought, she decided that the only way to really help was to catch some fish for it, so she spent the afternoon and evening fishing off her dock. 
As Gertie told the story, amazingly enough, the heron stood right beside her awaiting her catches. After a few days of this routine, it disappeared, and Gertie assumed it had recovered sufficiently from its injury to continue on its way. In the early 1970s, Gertie was discovered by several journalists, including Stan Tripp, who was a popular writer at the time and member of the Outdoor Writers of Canada. Using the pen name Heck, his articles about Gertie, the, quote, Lady of Algonquin Park, unquote, made her well known across North America. Stan would come to visit or call often and write about his adventures with Gertie. She became so popular that for years people would write letters to her from all over the world. Many were often addressed simply to Gertie, Baskerville, Algonquin Park, Canada. She kept all of the letters and would look through them on cold winter evenings and wonder at the responsive chord that her living alone in Algonquin Park seemed to strike in so many people. Once there was a letter from Carolyn Schroff, who some of you will remember from the Tom Thompson story. She was Martin Bletcher Jr.'s second wife. She wrote wistfully about her time in Algonquin Park in the late 1930s. Another was from a Laura Clark from St. Petersburg, Florida, who said at the time that she was the last living relative of Alexander Kirkwood. For those of you who recall, Alexander Kirkwood was one of the major persons who helped found Algonquin Park back in 1893. People would come to Algonquin Park just to meet her and view the beauty of South Tea Lake. Once she was even featured in a segment of a CBC television show called This Land, which ran at that time. Another time, she was interviewed on a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation show by journalist Erna Harris, who was a South Tea Lake neighbor. Around 1970, it finally became too much, and Gertie stopped taking in guests. The campground for the public had been built across the Smoke Creek Channel, and the preferred method of visiting the park became outdoor camping. During those years, she had filled six guest books of memories. Not too much longer after that, staying up all winter began to get very difficult, and the family worried about her constantly. So she finally let Alma, Ed, and Marge talk her into coming to Kitchener for the winter. According to Ed, closing up the place that fall was a terrible ordeal. Gertie hated locks, so all the doors and windows of each cabin had to be boarded up, even the outhouse. Once all the nails were hammered in and everything was all boarded up to Gertie's satisfaction, the hammer itself had to be hidden between some stones under one of the sleeping cabins. She arrived at Alma's just after the first snow in late November, but as soon as she felt that the snow was no longer blocking the back door, she wanted to head back to her northern Shangri-La. This routine lasted until 1979 when Ed insisted that she come down after Thanksgiving in early October. In her 80s, when Gertie's heart was failing and other health problems were taking their toll, the family used to take her up to South Tea Lake for a few days in the summer, which was about all she could manage. She was often confused, but always remembered wanting to feed the chickadees and the hummingbirds. She spent her last few years until her death in 1983 in a local Kitchener nursing home. The Baskerville clan is spread out far and wide these days, and every once in a while a family member will reach out to me either to learn more about their distant great-great-aunt or cousin, several times removed, or share a family anecdote. One funny moment happened a few years ago when a fellow Algonquin leaseholder was the designated driver for a group of women from a Waterloo-based art club. They were traveling along Highway 60 through the park when one of the group happened to mention that she had a distant aunt 
who used to live in the park at one time. Lo and behold, the driver had just finished reading about Gertie in my book and commented on the parallel narratives. Sure enough, after sharing more about the book with her colleague, all realized that Gertrude was in fact this same aunt. The clock struck 10 p.m. as Gertie headed out in her snowshoes across the frozen lake. It was hard to believe that after more than 40 years of wear, they were still just as supple as they were the day her brother Charlie had made them for her. The evening had been a pleasant diversion. Her visit with Michael Lundy and his wife Merrill for an evening of cards at their Camp Tamaqua cabin on the north shore of South Tee was a welcome respite in the dead of winter. They didn't talk much, which suited Gertie just fine. After such a long time alone up here in the park, people and their mindless chatter was getting harder and harder to take these days. Not that she had much choice for evening companions, other than the stringers, Jimmy and Wham, and the Gibsons, Gibby and Lulu, who were up at Potter Creek on Canoe Lake, there weren't many up here, at least not in the winter. Everybody else had headed out of here in late October as soon as the snow began to fly. Thank goodness for that, she would say to anyone listening. The wilderness needs a break from humans from time to time. But now here she was, heading home, kerosene-soaked bulrush torch in hand, lighting the way to her snug log cabin across the frozen lake. She could see the snowshoe tracks she'd made earlier in the day, weaving a solitary trail amongst the snowdrifts. They were covered now with a light dusting of snow. The ice on the lake was about 18 inches thick, but it cracked and heaved. It was a glorious night. The full moon was rising from the south, casting an eerie glow over the landscape. The stars were as bright as could be. And as she closed her eyes to tiny slits, she could see the contours of the ice sparkling like a thousand fireworks. She looked up for her favorite constellation, Orion, and saw it flickering there above her. As she rounded the first point, the wind started to pick up and whistled past her ears. She stopped in her tracks for a moment to pull her collar closer and shut out the sudden chill. In the moonlight, she could see the outline of her cabin on the far shore, looking so peaceful. As she approached, the snowdrifts that covered the dock made it look like a small mountain, and she could hardly see the winding path beyond that led to the cabin. Next to the door, she could see the wooden stakes and the box that marked the edges of the waterhole. Tied to a nearby tree at the shore was another rope that led to the shoreline and then up the path, another safety measure to beat back the snow demons. How many times after a blizzard had that little rope that connected her to the outhouse, to the woodpile, and to the waterhole been her savior and kept death away from her door? She couldn't count the number of times over the years that the snow had been so deep that she'd had to spend a whole day digging her way out. Suddenly, as she was about to start up the path, Gertie was overcome with a profound weariness that she'd not ever felt before. Her breathing became labored, so she decided to take a short rest and looked around to find her throne of ice that was her favorite spot in winter to sit and survey the late afternoon landscape. With a grunt, she sat down and took a deep breath. She felt the cold nipping at her toes, fingers, and cheeks. Must not wait here too long, she thought. The snow is a fearsome enemy, so comforting, so soft, but deadly just the same. 
A cloud passed in front of the moon, which plunged the world into darkness, except for her flickering torch. She snuggled down into the depths of her ice throne and closed her eyes for a moment and felt the stillness of the night envelop her. Nearby, she heard the crackling of broken branches and the rustling of moving leaves. In the abrupt darkness, she squinted and looked out across the clearing to find the source of the sound. Her eyes opened wide as a huge black shape left the protection of the forest and stepped out into the clearing. To her surprise, she immediately recognized her pal Joe, a huge 300-pound black bear, with whom she used to feed in summer out the kitchen door. For a moment, a huge grin spread across her face, until with a start, she realized that Joe was supposed to be sleeping snug in his den. As she muddled over this thought, there were more breaking branches, and out of the clearing came a dozen or so of her dear friends, with Fuzzy and Pinky leading the way. Behind them came all of the rest of the herd. Their majestic antlers stood out like beacons against the whiteness of the snow. As she gazed in wonder, more of her animal friends came out into the clearing. Raccoons, the chipmunks, the squirrels, the field mice. The bird feeders were full of birds, twittering and fluttering, including chickadees, nuthatches, white-throat sparrows, vireos, and warblers by the hundreds. Even her Canada Jay Peter was there, waiting patiently, which was quite unusual for him. Biddy, the ruffed grouse, stood quietly at the edge of the clearing by a huge log, her tail outstretched behind her, ready to beat out a tune if need be. Suddenly all was quiet as a lone timber wolf entered the clearing and stood patiently surveying the scene. Its yellow eyes were shining brightly, reflecting the moonlight. From behind her, out on the lake, came the lone, sharp cry of a loon. With a start, she twisted her head to look at the lake and realized that there was nothing there. The loons had headed south a long time ago. Her gaze returned to the clearing and found that the wolf's eyes were fixed upon her, and on his face was what seemed like half a smile. He started padding towards her. Gertie realized to her surprise that she felt no fear as the wolf came near and sat down beside her. Unconsciously, she reached out and scratched the wolf behind the ears and gave it a small pat on the head. It groaned with what seemed like a sigh of contentment. Suddenly, it spoke softly to her. Gertie, it's time. All of your friends are waiting for you. Gertrude smiled, closed her eyes, and felt her spirit soaring to the sky. Her mind wandered for a moment as images of her family, Ed and Marge, Alma, Mary and Greg, the grandchildren, nieces and nephews, her parents, her brothers and sisters, all came to her. A warm feeling of love and kindness filled her heart as a last breath left her body, and her spirit turned to meet the Great Father. The lone wolf began to howl in a voice of pain and of pure joy till the dawn rose from the eastern sky. I hope you've enjoyed the story of Gertrude Baskerville, which continues to be one of my favorites. 
If you'd like a copy yourself, check out the Friends of Algonquin bookstore. And to view some of the pictures of Gertie and her Tom Thompson wall hangings, check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Continuing in the same theme, in my next episode, I'm going to talk about the Hamilton family of Madawaska, who spent, oh, well over 50 years raising a dozen children on the shores of Victoria Lake. Until then, enjoy. Enjoy.